Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Salt Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm a partner at Skybridge Capital and the managing director of Salt, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. Salt Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our Salt conferences, which we host around the world, the next of which is in November, uh, November 14th to the 16th at Marina Bay Sands in Singapore. But our goal on these talks is, and the goal at all of our events is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. One of those big ideas is digital assets, blockchain, uh, and the cryptocurrency space. And we're very excited today to bring you the latest episode of the Salt Crypto Show, which is brought to you by our partner, FTX. Today's guest is a senior advisor at Coinbase. His name is John Diagostino. John has a very long and very decorated bio, so I'll give you an abridged version of it before we get into a little bit of his personal background uh, from the horse's mouth. But like I said, John is a senior advisor at Coinbase, where he oversees strategic partnerships for the business, bringing deep experience with sophisticated private investment vehicles characterized by complex strategies and asset classes, notably derivatives, structured credit, direct lending, high-frequency trading and quant trading, as well as other similar strategies. Prior to joining Coinbase, he was a managing director and part of the governance leadership team at DMS, providing guidance and independent oversight to boards to ensure adherence to governance, regulatory, uh, and compliance requirements. Previous to that, he was a managing director at Alkion Capital, focused on fundamental investment research across industry sectors, global compliance, and regulatory management. Uh, he spent time at places like KPMG. He was a lead advisory in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange acquisition of the London Metals Exchange. Uh, and he has lectured at INSEAD University, uh, as well as MIT and Columbia. Our host for today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm, which just to provide some disclosure, does significant amounts of business with Coinbase Institutional. Uh, so we're very excited to have from the Skybridge side, one of our partners uh, here on the talk with us today. But Anthony, you go ahead and take it away. Well, John, first of all, it's great to have you on. You've got this storied career. You're wickedly smart. Um, but I want to go deeper. Tell us a little bit about your background, what attracted you to the crypto space. But let's go early, okay, because you're an Italian-American like me. So I know you, you grew up in a neighborhood. And so tell yeah. me how you make the leap from a neighborhood to the world stage. Thanks, Anthony. Um, and thanks, John. It's, it's great to be here. Uh, I've known you for a long time. I was thinking today about preparing for this. I was thinking about I was there at the party at Brass Monkey when you were celebrating the acquisition of Skybridge. And I remember I have this vivid memory. Remember the first time we met face to face? This vivid memory of how excited you were. Um, it's just an extraordinary evolution, and it's been fun to share that journey with you. There's not a lot of us, man. There's not a lot of us Italian Americans. Right, so, so, so yeah. the the monkey bar. It was the monkey bar. Monkey bar, not okay. brass monkey. You're right. And it was yes. the fifth anniversary of Skybridge, and we were celebrating the acquisition of Citibank's alternative right. investment management. Okay. And right. it was a fateful day for John Darcy as well, because it was mm -hmm. on that evening that I met Susan Krakauer. Uh, and so that's a, mm -hmm. how somehow John entered my life. Okay. And, uh, and yeah, that was a crazy night. Now, yep. just to cap that off, we had our 15th anniversary in 2000 and 
20 at mm-hmm. that same monkey bar. Uh, of course, that was March 6, 2020. Everybody got COVID at the event. It was a super spreader event. And there was a lockdown shortly thereafter. And the monkey bar is no longer in existence. Now, we're hoping to bring the monkey bar back as it's downstairs from our office. But that's where we are right now. Gotcha. Uh, but you got you got a brilliant memory. So so that goes back 12 years. Yeah. Um, but go back farther. Go back farther. Sure. Where did you grow up? Sure. Um, what did your dad do? How would you get into this crazy business? Well, my dad and my mom uh, to collectively worked about six jobs. Um, grew up uh, born in Brooklyn. Uh, what used to be called Bensonhurst. I think they've renamed it to uh, increase property values. Uh, my dad was a longshoreman, but he would come home. Uh, I'd see him about 10, 15 minutes. He would always take me outside to play catch. And then he'd run off to his second job, which was a night job at a home for uh, autistic adults. My mother was a dental hygienist and she did some other things uh, to make sure that we had enough food on the table and we had the chance to get an education. And uh, my mother and father, uh, neither went to college. Um, I'm not sure either finished high school, but my mother used to have a laminated multiplication table and she would chase me around the house and smack the hell out of me if I couldn't get my times tables right. And she pushed me well beyond the degree to which she could help me academically. And I was very lucky. I, I tested well. Um, and the world has changed fundamentally. It's a lot harder to get into these great institutions these days, but because I tested well and because I came from a uh, lower, lower, lower middle class, upper, lower class background, there were opportunities afforded to me. And uh, suddenly I began to have these great chances. So the first chance for me was getting into Regis High School. I remember my mother uh, dropping to the floor crying when we got that letter, uh, mostly because it was free. Uh, partially because of what a great uh, academic institution it was. And uh, we moved from Brooklyn to Staten Island, as a lot of people did back then. And the commute to Regis, Anthony, was two and a half hours each way every day. There was no express bus. You took a bus. I took a bus to the ferry, to the train, back and forth each day. So I would get home at like 10, 11 o'clock at night. And um, that was my life for, for four years. And, you know, played sports, did everything I could to distinguish myself uh, in the hopes of being the first one in my family to go to college. And um, got really lucky, really, really lucky and got into some amazing uh, places, got to go to Oxford for a, for a short period of time and do a degree there. And then um, went to Williams College, uh, on to Harvard Business School. And um, just like you, got to experience that bit of fish out of water. I'd never been on a plane before I went to Oxford. Uh, I'd never done lots of things before I went to Harvard. And um, guys like you and me, I think we recognize the hard work it takes to get there. But we also recognize, I've heard you speak about this, how unbelievably lucky we were. Because despite the, the, the very moderate setbacks I had because of uh, the fact that my family wasn't wealthy or I didn't have parents who were college professors, um, it's nothing compared to what others have gone to go through. I think about this every day now, man. I mean, I, I'm a dad and I think about being a dad in Ukraine right now and, and what that must feel like. So, um, yeah, I worked really hard. I was born with a certain aptitude for test taking, which helped. Um, a lot of it was just luck, man. I, I was at parents who cared, who pushed me, uh, who wanted me to be, uh, I hate to say better because just you have a better education doesn't mean you're better than anyone, but wanted me to, uh, achieve more and uh, gave me the, the mechanisms to do that. 
Well, I mean, listen, it's an, it's an amazing story. Obviously, I think part of the reason why you and I are, are so close is that we identify with each other in terms of our commonality, in terms of our upbringing and our heritage. Um, and uh, we've also gotten rocked around a little bit uh, by markets and life. And so yeah. um, that that can be humbling, but it can also be fortifying. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about something that is both humbling and fortifying. That's today's bear market that we're in. Okay. Right. What is your outlook for the crypto space? Do you think we'll reach a true decoupling ever? Or do you think crypto is just going to be a risk asset that's co-linked to technology and other assets related to higher risk? Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think will drive a crypto rebound? Uh, mm -hmm. what, key in, what key indicators should we be looking for uh, in a rebound? Yeah. So, um, you know, the cynic in me, having gone through the story of, uh, of non-correlation, you know, as you know, my background was in commodities. I was head of strategy from the New York Mercantile Exchange. Exchange, And I remember back in the early aughts, you know, the, the folks who were, who were passionate about that market would sell that as a non-correlated market, non-correlated to debtor equities. And I think what we've seen now is because of sort of market structure trends and the, and the degree to which high-frequency trading and large prop shops dominate short-term flows, during periods of stress, there really is no, is no such thing as a non-correlated asset. During periods of stress, uh, risk-off periods as we're in now, um, I, I don't know, uh, unless there's some major shift to market structure uh, that comes at a regulatory or government level, I don't know if we'll ever have truly non-correlated assets um, during heavy risk-on or risk-off periods. I, 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 the cynic in me says that those days are over, but that's periodic. So we don't live in those times all the time. So uh, you know, every five to 11 years, we're going to have these risk-off events. Um, and during those periods, I, I don't know if anything's safe. Um, but during normalized periods, whatever that means, um, you have assets that will behave in fundamentally different ways. And I think that uh, commodities is one of those assets during normal periods. It does tend to be, uh, it does tend to be somewhat non-correlated to uh, uh, debt and equity. Um, and I think it's very likely that uh, digital assets are unique enough to uh, earn their own place uh, amongst among and, and be that type of of, of semi-correlated asset uh, during uh, during non-stress non-stress periods. Coinbase and BlackRock. Mm -hmm. I mean, that to me, it's like one of the most amazing partnerships that we have seen, period, the end, full stop. Tell us about that partnership. Yeah. So first, let me, I'm going to caveat this. I work for a public company. Uh, I don't speak on behalf of the company, and uh, nothing I say should be regarded as such. Um, you know, look, I think Coinbase BlackRock, the announcement today or yesterday of Coinbase Google, um, these, are, you know, these are truly important uh, seminal moments in the evolution of an asset class. Um, the, what they show is that the serious players who are thinking longer term, who have scale, and who make decisions very slowly and very thoughtfully, are trudging through this period undeterred and moving ahead uh, with their game plan. And that game plan is that digital assets and cryptocurrencies will play an increasingly important role in their economic model, whatever that economic model is. For some, they believe it's going to happen faster. For others, it's going to be a slower trudge over time. Um, but announcements like this are crucially important. So the BlackRock announcement, I think you know this is all public information, um, targeting uh, BlackRock's institutional investors across this Aladdin platform. I think the number was uh, 11 trillion of assets in the platform. Uh, hopefully I'm correct on that. Uh, but it's a large number. 
uh, and it's a, uh, a who's who, a global who's who of institutional investors. So the, the, the question that people should be asking is, would, would companies like BNY Mellon with their announcement today, would companies like Google, BlackRock, would they make these decisions capriciously? Would they make them in the absence of significant um, customer demand? In the case of BlackRock, it's institutional uh, investor clients. Uh, in the case of Google, and it's choosing Coinbase for payments and custody, um, it's cloud service, institutional and commercial cloud service uh, customer uh, customers. Um, this isn't uh, a marketing gimmick. This isn't uh, your local coffee shop puts up a sign saying we'll accept Bitcoin, uh, but in reality, you know, doesn't really have any demand for for, for Bitcoin as, a, as as payment. This is these, these companies would not make these decisions and go through the the torturous process of. Uh, of engaging in a very public and visible uh, partnership if there wasn't serious institutional and commercial demand. I, I think I think it's well well said. You also have a situation now uh, where you're getting uh, more and more people like the Bank of New York uh, willing to accept custody arrangements for uh, cryptocurrency. So cryptocurrencies, I think you and I would both agree, are here to stay. Uh, what percentage in a portfolio is a responsible percentage. So you you got to start you you, you got to start with understanding people's risk profile. You know, I was in I was at um I won't say where, but I was somewhere. I was in, I was in a poor part of the world. And I got into a taxi and I was talking to the taxi driver and and uh there was a a crypto conference there recently. It wasn't yours. But um he said to me, "Oh, I got all these guys in the cab, you know, trying to get me to buy this or that coin." And I asked him, like, did any of them start by asking about you, about your life, about how many kids you got, about your financial situation? And he said, no. And that's problematic. Now, I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not giving financial advice. But, but you, you have to start that conversation with, you know, to what degree are you comfortable taking idiosyncratic market risk? To what degree are you comfortable taking, you know, uh, investing in assets that pro, that's prone to illiquidity gaps? I got a lot of the same questions I'd ask someone if they told me how much should I have in natural gas options or natural gas futures. Um, so I think I think the industry would do itself well, and I think it does a fairly good job of that. I think uh, the, the the better spokespeople for the industry, people like yourself, um, I always hear you talking about being thoughtful about making any any uh, asset allocation decision uh, that's that that, in, that involves a volatile asset class. So I'm I'm very I grew up I grew up in commodities I grew up in a very very volatile asset class you know this doesn't phase me, um, but I'm very protective of um, of the retail audience, and so I do think you have to start with that with that with that basic suitability conversation. Um, that being said, I would argue that at a minimum, uh, digital assets play a functionally equivalent role to what commodities play in a traditional portfolio. So again, with the understanding, I'm not a financial advisor. Um, I personally feel comfortable as a, and I'll just give you, I'm a pretty conservative investor. Um, I invest with my time, uh, my portfolio. I like to sleep at night and I like to think about earning dividends to pay for my, my daughter's education. So as a fairly conservative guy, I feel pretty comfortable with anywhere from three and a half to let's call it 9%. And that's really an emotional decision. Like once you reach a 10 handle to me, that just becomes an emotional decision. So for a very conservative guy, I'm comfortable with three and a half, five to 9% exposure to this asset class. Okay, so but my, 20, gonna, yeah, yeah. Sorry, my 24% exposure would have you nervous? I'm just asking. You're, you're, you got bigger, you're, you're more of a risk taker than I am. Uh, we've, I've always known this. I always admired you for that. 
Um, you, you, and what I've always admired most about you is that even as you got wealthier, even as you got more successful, most people, as they advance in their careers, their, their risk abates, their risk tolerance abates because they have more to lose. Um, you don't. So you're unique in that, Anthony. You have to, you have to understand that. Um, I grew up, you know, I grew up constantly hearing, overhearing conversations under the door of my parents' bedroom that we were one paycheck away from not being able to eat. So I don't care how much I have in the bank. I always think I'm a week away from eating dog food. Can you um, help me with something? Yeah. What What is stopping widespread and massive institutional adoption? Okay. You know, what, what, what's the impediment? Yeah. What am I so, so when we say it's so institutional adoption, first of all, I, think, I think institutions are adopting it. So I think it's happening. It's not happening as fast as people who have had the luxury of seeing this insane bull market, both in terms of price appreciation and adoption in crypto over the last five years. If you were, if you were deeply embedded in that, as I know you were, I get why the pace seems uh, glacial. That I get. For me, uh, you know, I'll just take you back, Anthony. I, my, one of my first jobs at NYMEX was. Uh, you know, to assist the marketing team in helping sell new derivatives contracts. So we had launched a jet fuel contract. You can hedge your, your jet fuel exposure. And I remember this is like, and this isn't like 1960s, this is like 2007. I remember being on the phone, listening into conversations with airlines in 2006, 2007. And the marketing guys at NYMEX were like, well, what, you should use our derivatives contracts to hedge your fuel exposure. And I remember this, 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 this very, very smart CFO of an airline saying, well, that's ridiculous. We're in the business of flying people around the world. We're not in the business of speculating on jet fuel. And I remember writing a note and handing it to the marketing guy saying, tell him that's the whole point. If you don't hedge, you are speculating. You are massively speculating. You're short jet fuel every single day that you wake up. If you hedge, you're not. So we agree with you. You're not in the business of speculating on, 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 on fuel prices. That's why you should do this. It took a decade. We had to go to the analyst. Eventually, we had, a, we had an idea. Let's go to the analyst, the equities analyst. And the next time an airline gets on an earnings call and says, we missed because of rising jet fuel prices, tell the analyst, scream at that idiot and tell him to use the NYMEX's fuel, fuel, uh, jet fuel contract to hedge. So these things just take time. There's institutional inertia is a very real thing. I knew traders. I, I, I worked. I had a hedge fund where a guy, one of the guys that worked for me, picked up his monitor and threw it through a window because the colors on his OMS, his order management system, changed. Just his colors, right? These are creatures of habit. There's a lot of switching costs associated with it, added with adding new assets. So, for me, for someone who spent 15 years trying to get commodities to be mainstream, it's actually moving fast. But I do understand why, for somebody in the in the heat of the moment. Um, uh, feels this glacial. But for institutional, I think it's moving very, very fast. So let me test something on you and then you sure. tell me what you think. Okay. So my my theory is, because I'm an old Wall Streeter, my theory is this manifested itself in the retail environment. And so a lot of yep. the institutions poo-pooed it because of that. And then it became yep. a cause celeb by the media. And then some Wall Streeters started buying in just to be a part of the fad, if you will. There was a huge run-up. Uh, the regulators have said no to things like a cash ETF. Uh, right. And in December, uh, November of last year, we started a slide and we entered into crypto winter as people evacuated from the space that jumped in. So I sort of feel like people that came into the space 
a year ago, they jumped in, space was hot, it got cold, they jumped out, and now the space is languishing for a while. What am I yep. missing? No, I think you're right. And I think I think in in I think and your 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 assumption as to the causes I think are correct. Um I think we gotta be one of the things that, you know, honestly, Anthony, one of the things that I think we can do better as a sector is admitting our flaws. It drives me nuts that every piece of news that comes out, there's somebody who jumps up immediately and says, this is great for Bitcoin. This is great for the cryptocurrency. Some things are not great for the sector. And, 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 and you just highlighted a couple of them. Um, this, this receding tide has shown some real flaws. It's shown some real problems. So this washout that's occurring, um, I think, is absolutely necessary. Again, I'm not going to say it's a good thing. I'd rather it didn't happen. But we are where we are. And this washout of some of these uh, private firms that were operating uh, with horrific, um, just insane lack of risk of risk guidance um, needed to be washed out. There needs to be a changing of the guard to some degree so that um, and when I say adults, I don't mean necessarily older people. Um, I mean, in individuals who have seen one or two cycles, one or two crises, uh, take the helm at some of these organizations that survive and take over so that when the next cycle grows, it grows on a, a more stable foundation. Um, so I don't agree. I don't disagree with you at all. Um, I think the regulators have been, um, have been complacent to the point of harming the U.S.'s positioning with regards to the growth of this technology. I understand. I'm sympathetic to their point of view. I'm sympathetic to the notion that they feel they have to protect uh, retail investors from volatile, uh, volatile assets. Uh, but we have reached a point where, um, and by the way, I think that's going to change. I, I think, I think, uh, despite the delay, uh, an ETF is inevitable. Um, I can't tell you when it's going to happen, but I, but I know at some point it's going to happen. So, again, I'm just, I'm a little more cynical because I saw, I saw the barriers that commodities have to go through to gain institutional and retail acceptance. Um, I do see the same path being forged. Um, but yeah, you're, 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 you're 100% right as to where we are right now. Okay, I'm going to turn it over to the uh, matinee idol, uh, John Dorsey. Um, the uh, although at one point somebody described him as a 1980s serial killer with those glasses and the sweater and so forth, but uh, let's face it, he does get he has a huge fan base. He gets fan <laughs> he gets fan mails from these salt talks. So I'm I'm going to turn it over to him and let him intersperse right. some questions. Um, but I appreciate your candor and I appreciate your insight into the uh, space. Yeah, I believe it was one of our colleagues called me Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, I know he's he's uh, been back in the public zeitgeist due to the, the Netflix show, but we'll we'll ask him over that one. Um, John, great to have you on. Um, one thing you've touched on it uh, in some of your comments, but uh, is around regulation. Like you said, you began your career in the commodity space, um, and there's a lot of discourse in Washington right now around how digital assets should be regulated, how they should be categorized. Um, you know, there's been some uh, regulation by enforcement with the SEC bringing different cases. As you look at the crypto space, I want to ask you two questions. How should crypto assets or digital assets be regulated? You know, is there a distinction that should be made between uh, different assets within the space? You know, certain assets should be categorized as commodities, others should be securities. And then how do you think they will be regulated? So, how should digital assets be regulated? How will they be regulated? Understanding your caveat earlier that you are an advisor to Coinbase, a public company, you don't speak for the company, but uh, right. what are your views on, on where regulation right. should be and where, where it's headed? So, 
So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to try to give you an answer that is the least hedging answer possible without getting myself in trouble. <laughs> um, you know, I, again, I grew up in the commodities world and there's this perception that the CFTC is a you know, easier regulator than the SEC. I don't necessarily think that's true. So I think both the CFTC and the SEC, um, you know, overall do a great job. And the reason I know they do a great job is we have the en- most enviable public markets in the world. Um, and so we're not trying to be an apologist for, for the regulatory regimes, but the system we have works. It's worked pretty well. And I think it'll continue to work. I think it's unlikely, um, although I definitely see the advantages of one. I think it's unlikely that a new regulatory regime or oversight function will be created for this asset class. Maybe some point long, long after I'm gone, uh, not because it shouldn't be, but because uh, it's just uh, unlikely to get the political galvanization required to um, to make that happen. It's just a very, very difficult thing to do. Um, so I think it's likely that um, it's very, very likely that uh, so remember this, this bifurcated regulatory regime we have with the SEC and CFTC sort of fight for control. A lot of people in crypto see that as as problematic, and I certainly see it as problematic from time to time. But for those people in Washington who believe that you know, we have the best public capital markets in the world, that's a feature, not a bug. Um, so I'm sure you've worked for bosses or no bosses who like to you know, pit people against each other because they believe it creates you know, a better overall environment through increased competition. The view of people who support the bifurcated regulatory regime in the US, they believe that that's a healthy ecosystem where the SEC and CFTC fight over everything. So I think it's very, very likely that that will continue. Um, it's not unusual. It happens in every other asset class. Uh, you know, if you know, compost swaps, composite swaps. If you trade a foreign current, a foreign equity, and you want to trade as an, as an ADR and you want to do it under swap because you don't want to hold the foreign currency, um, it's a single asset swap. And that is under the SEC. If you staple, and let's say pay, that, that equity pays a dividend in yen, and you don't want the headache of having to like hedge your yen out or convert your yen later, and Morgan Stanley calls it, hey, we have this thing called a compo or composite swap. All we do is we take the single asset swap and then we staple the currency swap to it. So you just, it's super simple. It's the same thing as doing the two independently and you just get paid in dollars. Tons of it gets done because it's, it makes sense. Well, guess what? Magically now that's a multi-asset swap and you're under CFTC guidelines. And I was, I'm on a board of hedge funds and I can't tell you how many hedge funds lost their mind because they suddenly thought, Oh man, we have to be SCFTC registered now because we do these compost swaps. So it is my point in belaboring that kind of nerdy, uh, boring uh, point. There is um, that's how it works. That's how it's probably going to work for crypto. What I mean by that is the CFTC and SCC are going to fight over their regulatory oversight, and they both want bigger budgets, and they both want you know, they, they want to regulate more, not less. And they'll fight with each other. And in fact, you've seen examples already of them fighting publicly or on Twitter, um, get, you know, negotiating their positioning within this new asset class. So again, as much as that depresses people in crypto, and I get why, I consider it a good thing because here's why. Nobody fights over something that's useless. Nobody fights over something they think is worth nothing. Nobody fights over something that they think is going to go away. So the fact that Crypto is being used as a bargaining chip by the heads of regulatory agencies, not just in the U.S., but around the world. The fact that these public announcements are being made that are very specifically leaked purposely um, to push a positioning around which regulatory agency will be in control, that is an indication that this is a vitally important piece of market structure. So... 
short answer to your question, um, I think it will exist within the current regulatory regime, probably just because not because it should, but because that's that's more likely. Um, and I think that you'll see um, the regulatory agencies fight over uh, control, and the SEC will obviously you know try to make the case that more more things are securities than not. Uh, you know, and the industry will disagree, and that will be fought out over time. And the timeline will be long, and it will actually the timeline will 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 go further than individual regimes. Um, and so a lot of it depends on who's in charge at any one point in time, uh, both in Congress, Senate, and uh, and at the SEC. But it will take it will take time for these things to be sorted out. Yeah, as you mentioned, it's not a straightforward scenario. I mean, you have certain applications that uh, Congress is looking at that are actually open source code. Bitcoin being one example of that. So. If, right. if you're a government, how do you regulate something that's open source code? Yes, you can tax it in onerous ways. You can uh, prevent U.S. registered banks and institutions from dealing with it in certain ways. But is yeah. that really sort of the American way um, that, that we look at innovation? Is it is it banning things because they don't fit into your strategic set of priorities? Or is it finding ways to embrace it and, and enable uh, innovation in a responsible way? I mean, it's, it's a rhetorical question, right? It's certainly, It's certainly the latter. Um, and again, you know, I, 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 I pull back from being too critical because again, I think one of the other problems, I think, I think our sector has a couple of problems that, that Anthony, I'm sure will agree, you know, we had in the hedge fund space. I always, I find it amazing that in general hedge funds, just as, as a, as a, as a concept, they're not an asset class, a concept are, are, are not liked very well. Like if you just, if you like poll Congress or poll the average person in the street and say, you know, what's better private equity or hedge funds, um, they, people love private equity more. Which is ironic because they're the ones who actually buy companies, strip out the pensions, and sell it for parts, whereas hedge funds generally just play in public markets. But we did horrible PR for decades, just horrible, horrible PR. And, and we allowed, in my view, we allowed you know, some of the worst people to be the de facto spokespeople of the industry, right? Not hardworking, honest people, not people with empathy. Um, and, and crypto to some degree does that. Uh, I'll be very honest, right? We, we, we do a bad job of elevating spokespeople who um, can, can show humanity. Um, you know, if I, if I hear, I have fun being poor, you know, one more time, we don't hear it recently, but every time I would hear that, you know, during the bull run, I want to reach through the Zoom call or reach into the CNBC, you know, panel and just strangle someone. So, um, we have to be very, very careful about how we present ourselves as, as human beings. Because there are, despite the fact that this is a decentralized revolution, there are human beings behind this revolution. And um, uh, we got to be thoughtful about how you know, we, we engage with both retail and with the SEC and with the regulators. Um, they're not the enemy. They're not dumb. They're not, they're not Luddites just because they don't, you know, they don't see, see the light immediately. Um, you know, I think Anthony is a great example of someone who does a really, really good job. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I, I cringe every time I open my Twitter because I, I, fe I, I'm fearful for him as my friend. But he's masterful at de-escalating, and he's masterful at, at, at creating a human side to an argument. And I think we as an industry have to do better about explaining why it is we believe this revolution is happening, and instead of just getting angry at people for not agreeing with us. I want to go back to your point uh, about institutional adoption earlier. So there was a conversation, I think it was around mid-August, where both the SEC and the CFTC raised the idea that hedge funds or any uh, regulated asset management company who has exposure to crypto might need to disclose uh, that exposure. And I thought that was fascinating because I thought it would actually be a very bullish indicator because 
And you don't have to go through and reveal all the different institutions. I'm, when I say institutions, I'm not talking about asset allocators in this case. I'm talking about hedge funds, private equity firms, uh, yep. those types of institutions. But you and I both know that the level of exposure that leading hedge funds and investment management firms have to crypto is much more significant than the public yeah. even realizes at this point. Absolutely. How much, how much is that the case? I know it's a leading question a little bit, but how yeah. much is that the case? And and how much does it reinforce your view that quietly there's still a lot of conviction among sort of smart money about the future of crypto and that sort of the recent yeah. swoon is is largely a product of the macro environment? Well, I, I'm I'm 100% confident that that the recent spoon is not is not a death knell for the sector. Like I, I know I know that for a fact. Like I said, I, I can't tell you when the next bull market's going to happen. I can't. But quite frankly, to be perfectly honest, I, I'm not really focused on that. I'm focused on the building and the infrastructure that continues to grow and the announcements like Coinbase, BlackRock, Coinbase, Google. Um, I saw that announcement by the SEC as a bit of a non-event, just because. If you're over a buck fifty and you're regulated and registered with the FTC or the CFTC as a, as a hedge fund, you're disclosing that anyway. I, I don't know of a single hedge fund that would trade a new asset class, whatever it was, commodity futures, anything that they weren't doing. I don't know of a single hedge fund. And if I were on the board of that fund, I would drop off if they refused to. That if they were investing in any new asset class, privates, real estate, whatever it is, something that they were not investing in when they started the fund would not disclose it to their investors. And by the way, they file ADVs. And by the way, they have, there's an audit at the end of the year. So the, 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 the idea of you have to disclose this to your, to your LPs, it really didn't matter much to me because um, in, 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 the term, in, in the terms of, oh, wow, LPs are now going to be nervous about this exposure. I knew that wasn't the case. Um, to your point, I did think it would make people kind of open up their eyes and say, wow, um, an enormous percentage of hedge funds uh, are trading this asset class. Way more more hedge funds that were not created for the purpose of trading crypto are trading crypto than any other asset class, meaning any other, any other hedge funds cre were created for X and are now trading an element of Y. Um, more hedge funds are trading crypto, I believe, than commodity futures. So that part, I think, still hasn't hit, um, and partially because it's a boring data point. You know, Your average person in the street doesn't really care what's in the typical hedge fund manager's portfolio. Um, and partly because right now we're at peak pessimism. The pessimists have the mic right now. And in my experience, when the pessimists have the mic, nothing you say is going to change their mind because they're motivated. A lot of them make their money selling research, indicating that they were correct over this period. They've been bears for 12 years. And guess what? They're right now. And so we've got to let that cycle ride out. And the more we scream and tilt at windmills, instead of just focusing on building, <clears throat> excuse me, the, um, the, uh, the, it's a waste of time. I don't want to argue with contrarians on Twitter. Um, I just want to build. And when the cycle changes, and guess what? The world's not going to end. Uh, and, we, and we all laugh about how crazy we were, uh, you know, a year, 18 months, however long it is from now. Um, that infrastructure we built will be there. there there's two types of bubbles. There's, um, uh, there's um, uh, constructive bubbles. Uh, and there's non-constructive bubbles. Non-constructive bubbles leave nothing in their wake. There's just there's just air. There's vapor. Um, constructive bubbles, uh, like the first internet bubble, for example, um, leave behind core essential infrastructure upon which the next revolution is built. So there was certainly a bubble in, in certain digital assets, without question. Um, but what we're seeing clearly is that this was a highly constructive bubble, and the frenzy that occurred over that period of time uh, the, the, the byproduct of that frenzy is extraordinary infrastructure. 
And that's what we built on. So the first internet bubble produced Google, PayPal, Twitter, essential core infrastructure for using Web 1 and Web 2.0. And that's what we've seen being built over the last you know, six to eight years. So I'm going to I'm going to make a statement that's going to lead to a question. But okay. um, Robin Wigglesworth from the Financial Times, uh, a writer at the FT, pointed out this morning, he posted a chart that actually the longest maturity UK government bond is down worse in the last year. than Bitcoin is. <laughs> I had that as one of my speaking notes. She just stole one of my speaking notes. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is it crystallizes in our minds that we're seeing, yep. you know, uh, a destruction, in a lot of different asset classes and sort of uh, anomalies on the global stage in terms of the performance of certain yep. currencies, certain government bonds. And, you know, people um, talk about the irresponsibility yep. and the um, uh, whatever you want to talk about the U.S. government with its deficit spending, with its with its national debt and things like that. But we're sort of yep. the most responsible house in a universe that that is uh, fiscally yeah, irresponsible but- right now. You know, yeah. there, there's been a lot of dialogue from a macro perspective about Bitcoin being an alternative to that dollar-based system and sort of the fiat-based system that uh, isn't serving people particularly well, but we haven't yep. seen that decoupling yet uh, from global risk assets. Do you think that we might be reaching that point where that decoupling might begin because of how much the world is on fire right now? So again, I'm not, I'm not going to try to predict price movements, but I will say that almost every day um, uh, the U.S. government is building that use case. Without question. So if you think about kind of why, you know, given the extraordinary power OPEC has over oil prices, why don't the Saudis continue to pressure OPEC, use their influence to drive oil prices up just inextricably over time? Because they're not stupid. And they know that if they maintain high oil prices for too long, we shift into alternatives. And so they play a delicate game of maximizing their own revenue without killing the cash cow by, um, by motivating us too soon to shift into alternatives. They keep us hooked on that drug over time. Um, the U.S. dollar is no different, right? Right now, we have a very, very strong U.S. dollar that's wreaking havoc across the global monetary system and across global economies. Um, if we're not careful, just like with the Saudis and crude oil prices, it will motivate a movement away. Now, again, do I, do I think the world is going to shift away from the dollar in mass? Obviously not. Structurally, no. The dollar will be probably the predominant form of, uh, of global monetary, uh, of intra, intra-country monetary policy for a very, very long time. Um, but it does, cre- does it create a window for uh, sub-economies, for isolated sub-economies to, to grow, uh, like Bitcoin? Without, without question. Um, so it's certainly not bearish, uh, that's for sure. Uh, when a decoupling will occur, I have no idea, John. I mean, markets can stay irrational uh, longer than you can stay solvent. So um, not to be trite, but uh, I just know that that stepping back, um, there is it's certainly not bearish long term, both structurally and from a price direction on Bitcoin, to have the U.S. government uh, have a monetary policy as it currently has. John, you're a very worldly man. Uh, knowing that you didn't step on an airplane until you attended Oxford, you are now uh, you spent time all over the world, from the Middle East to Asia to Europe, um, and you're a student of global geopolitics and geoeconomics. Again, as you spend time in those other parts of the world, you know, in the United States is where we're largely focused. I know Coinbase's business is largely focused, but as you talk to people in those different geographies, what is their enthusiasm uh, for digital assets and, and the use cases they see for it? Yeah. Well, Coinbase is global. Uh, I think we announced today finalization of uh, a registration status in Singapore. We have uh, business in Ireland, London, uh, and other places. But, um, the you know, there there's... 
I haven't been to some of the places, uh, you know, I haven't been to areas in Africa that are uh, at, a, at, a, at a grassroots retail level are really embracing, uh, embracing crypto. So I won't try to speak for uh, the drivers in those parts of the world. Um, there certainly is, I mean, there certainly is a, a correlation between regulatory regime permissiveness and constructiveness around crypto and the level of excitement of the region. So if you go to areas like the UAE, um, which are, are, are the regulators are extremely constructive on digital assets, uh, you see uh, a significant appetite both at the retail and institutional level, but also at the commercial and government level uh, with announcements about uh, next generation decentralized and metaverse applications for solving government efficiency problems happening almost every day. Um, some of those will fail. Some of those will be less uh, impactful than they were designed to be. Uh, but without question, if we fast forward five years from now, we will be jealous of those countries that were able to innovate and test and experiment on those more efficient mechanisms for delivering public services to its citizens. Um, I know it's harder the US, it's harder for large countries to get these things done. It's easier for smaller countries, of course, there's no question. Uh, but that willingness to experiment and innovate certainly doesn't hurt. Um, so I think there's certainly a direct correlation between that. Um, I'd say in general, the appetite is, is, is greater than you see in the US. It's more a part of the everyday conversation. Um, both at an institutional level and at a retail level. Certainly that's the case in Asia. Um, somewhat, I think, in the EU, uh, definitely in the Middle East. Um, so I think what I'd say is, um, particularly when you talk about blockchains like Bitcoin, um, uh, truly decentralized blockchains, um, there is a direct correlation between, where, between the degree to which you have a viable concern about violent government intervention at, a, at, a citizen, at an individual level and the degree to which you are open-minded about these alternative monetary systems. So despite what you may think about our government at any point in time, it's very, very rare for them to break down your door capriciously based on a personal grudge, grab you, take you somewhere, and hold you until you give them your money. That is a reality in many places of the world. So having an immutable, easily transferable form of value that's to some degree exempt from government intervention and not beholden to centralized counterparties for value transfer um, is an extraordinary innovation that I think sometimes those of us who are th those of us here who poo-poo it um, are speaking from a position of privilege that they may want to rethink. So there's that. That's the extreme level of why it's being, it's being supported in, in very, very bad parts of the world. Um, but then in general, even in open and free places like the UAE, um, there's uh, an excitement about what this means for government efficiency, what this means for commercial efficiency. Uh, we're seeing development of sort of like commercial buyer groups using stable coins and similar assets uh, to facilitate cross-border payments. Um, so, there, But I'd say the most direct correlation is regulatory constructiveness uh, is directly correlated with the degree of innovation that, that you're seeing on the ground. Couldn't agree more. Uh, John, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Anthony, do you have any final questions or comments for John before we let him go? No, listen, I, we, we appreciate your insight as always. Uh, I attribute you as being one of the people that uh, encouraged us, frankly, to get into the space. And of course, we, uh, we are big fans of Coinbase. Uh, we own a lot of Coinbase stock uh, through our ETF and, and personally. Yep. And so we, want to, we, want, we wish you continued success. Mr. Well, I'll end with this. I think you mentioned the importance of these partnerships. 
you and I both decided to work with globally leading institutions that have had the courage to make themselves transparent in this evolution. Um, that says a lot. And I think, I think we need to, we need to really, and, and uh, tons of great small private companies, tons of great folks operating under the radar, doing great work and building. But I think we really need to stand behind these institutions like Coinbase, like FTX that are leading the way and making themselves the punching bags um, to, to, to get this to that level of, of regulatory government and institutional and retail acceptance. Well said. Thanks for your time, gentlemen. All right, John. Great having you on. All the best. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's talk with uh, Coinbase Senior Advisor John D'Agostino. Very fortunate to have uh, John as an advisor. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this episode or any of our previous episodes of SALT Talks, you can access them on our website at salt.org backslash talks, on our YouTube channel, or anywhere that you consume podcasts. These are available in audio form. We're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at SALT Conference, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. And please spread the word about these talks. Again, I think it's a great educational opportunity from somebody like John, who has a sober perspective on the space, um, to talk through regulatory outlook and the macro uh, position that the space is in right now. But on behalf of Anthony and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.